Scripture reading today will be in Luke chapter 8. We continue our uh, scripture reading each Lord's Day as we go through uh, the Gospel of Luke. And I'll read Luke chapter 8. I'm going to read the first 18 verses. The word of the Lord says, Soon afterwards, he began going around from city, from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sickness, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. When a large crowd was coming together and those from various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by the way of parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it had grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell on among thorns, and the thorns grew up and, it, and with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And he said these things, He would call out, He who has ears, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, but Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that it will not believe. They will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with great joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a container or puts it under a bed. But he puts it on a lampstand so those who come in might see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen, for whoever has, the more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We'll come to the time of service where we uh, go back to our catechism. Inside your bulletin on the bottom left, you'll see the catechism question for this week. As I've mentioned before, we're going through the Ten Commandments systematically, and we're on the Third Commandment. So what we'll do is I'll say the question, and then in cadence, all together, as one church, we'll say the answer. Question 60. What is forbidden in the Third Commandment? Answer. The Third Commandment forbids all profaning and abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. You see there's a number of scripture texts there. Uh, The third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name 
in vain. It's much more than using the Lord's name as a curse word, although the third commandment does include that. And here, the question gives us what's forbidden. The question before, question 59, is what's required. I'm going to read just an excerpt on John Calvin, his institutes on the third commandment. I think he puts it uh, together much more brilliantly than I could. He says, we must, in my opinion, diligently observe the three following points. First, whatever our mind conceives of God, whatever our tongue utters, should savor of his excellence, match the loftiness of his sacred name, and lastly, serve to glorify his greatness. Secondly, we should not rashly or perversely abuse his holy word and worshipful mysteries either for the sake of our own ambition or greed or amusement, but as they bear the dignity of his name imprinted upon them, they should ever be honored and prized among us. Finally, we should not defame or detract from his works, as miserable men are wont abusively to cry out against him, but whatever we recognize as done by him, by God, we should speak of it with praise of his wisdom, righteousness, and goodness. That is what it means to hallow God's name, which we know in the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, he says, uh, one of the petitions is, hallowed be thy name. It's a, rep- it's a repetition, really, of the third commandment, not taking the name of the Lord's thy God in vain, but hallowing it honoring it, everything we think about God and speak about God, about his word, about his works, about his, his person and attributes and character should all be to glorify the beauty uh, of his majesty. Amen. If you please turn to hymn number 404. My faith has found a resting place. Let's stand again and worship together. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. Enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saves, this ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him, he'll never cast me out. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name, 
salvation through his blood. I need no other argument. I need no other it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. My great physician heals the sick, the loss he came to save. For me his precious blood he shed, for me his life he gave. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. If you turn right back to hymn number 388, He Will Hold Me Fast. Another great hymn. <clears throat> when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Those He saves are His delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. For my life He bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to side. When he comes at last, he will hold. 
fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Thank you. Be seated. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot. Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be signed. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend even so it is well with my my soul it is well with my soul it is well it is well with my my soul
don't know how to pre- preach after that. Thank you. That just ministers ministers me so much, that hymn. I know, I think I say it every time, that verse of my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to a cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Thank you so much, Pastor David. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Today I'm going to pick back up our study on the validity and the perpetuity of God's law. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 17 uh, through 20, I'm going to read. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, that we can gather together. Lord, as we look at your word and what you said about your own law found in our Old Testament, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us. God, I pray, pray that we would all leave with a greater appreciation and admiration of you and your law. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a few weeks, but the last time, if you recall, we walked through this text in sort of an exegetical fashion, and I showed you how Jesus established the law of God and proved from the text that his law found in the Old Testament would be in effect until he says, quote, heaven and earth pass away, or when he says, until all is accomplished, or until all that will happen has happened. And just as a way of reminder, if we look back at our text uh, in verse 17, what we did is we looked at, for those that weren't here, just to refresh because it's been a few weeks, we looked at an important vital word in verse 17 and 18 where it says, uh, verse 17, uh, where he says, I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. The word but there in the Greek, if you recall, is Allah. It's a stark it's a word used for stark contrast. So it was the key to unlock this text to show that Jesus, he says, I didn't come to abolish or destroy the law, but, so something he's about to say contrasts directly with what he just said about not destroying the law, but to, he says, fulfill, which is a word that can be used and is often used to establish or to set in place. So we looked at Jesus as saying, I didn't come to abolish or destroy the law, but to establish it, but to confirm it. So if you didn't listen to that sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. And I pray that you can see from this text, from the words of the mouth of our Lord, that the law of God is still valid and still perpetual, meaning it's still active and it's still applicable to today's believer. And friends, not only is it applicable, it is the objective standard and foundation for everything that pertains to morality and biblical 
ethics. I want you to understand that. It's not just, oh, the Old Testament. Yeah, it applies to us in some ways. It is the foundation of everything that pertains to morality and biblical ethics, which is why in verse 19, after Jesus establishes the law, he said, whoever then, meaning because of what I just said, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them the Old Testament law, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And the rest of chapter 5, Jesus goes on to correct the Pharisaical misunderstanding of God's law. So God's law is very important. It's this foundation. It establishes everything that we need that pertains to morality. And we're going to see here that it does so much more than that. But having established the validity and the perpetuity of the law, well, this follows many questions, doesn't it? Many questions that we want answers to, such as, well, you know, we're not in Old Testament Israel. How do we approach the law? Like, you had the law includes the sacrificial system. Are we to sacrifice animals? And what about all the cleanliness laws and the festivals? Does that mean we have to obey all of that? And if not, why not? So that's what we're going to try to dive into today. But it's very important for us to have the foundation that the law of God is good. The law of God is good. Now, Paul said the law brings about wrath, which it does, and it's supposed to. We're going to get into that more, but the law itself is good. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8, he says, But we know the law is good if, he says, one uses it lawfully. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. So this also derives the idea that there's an unlawful way to use the law. There's a right way to use the law and a wrong way to use the law. We must be diligent students of the word so we can understand how to use the law, as Paul says, lawfully. So I want to springboard just for a moment from our text after establishing the validity of the law of God. I want to springboard to dive into this topic that I'm talking about pertaining to the law of God in the New Testament believer's life. So to do that, I want to first set a foundation for what does the law include. And so we're going to divide the law, so to speak, um, in two sections. So when I say the law, I mean the entirety of the Old Testament. Okay? And as we go through the New Testament believer's use of the law, I want to make sure we understand there's basically two parts of God's law. It's his moral law and the ceremonial law. Now, some divide this into three, and they'll also include the civil law, but I believe that actually belongs into God's moral law. So the moral law contains statutes and ordinances that reflects God's absolute holiness and righteousness. Contains statutes and ordinances that reflects God's absolute holiness and righteousness. God's moral law was never and is never to be used as a means of, to gain righteousness. So his moral law includes the Ten Commandments. That's sort of the foundation for God's moral law. I believe it also includes the civil law. Now, many theologians will divide and separate the civil law from the moral law, but where do the civil laws come out of? They come right after the Ten Commandments, and they 
are given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and then he says, here's how you are to use and live by these Ten Commandments in my covenantal community. So those civil laws on the what you ought and what ought not do, and here are the penal sanctions for those laws, come out of God's Ten Commandments. So I believe they're actually an expression of God's moral laws. And then the rest of the Old Testament, outside the ceremonial laws, and what we'll get to, the rest of the Old Testament is an exposition of God's Ten Commandments. The rest of the Old Testament expounds upon the foundation of the Ten Commandments. Like I said, the moral law has its foundation in the Ten Commandments. But then the rest of the narratives of the Old Testament explain God's covenant people in relation to his law. And then books like Proverbs. Proverbs is like the applicability, how to apply in everyday wisdom using God's law. So you have God's moral law, his absolute holiness reflective of his righteousness. Then you have the ceremonial law. Now the ceremonial law, some theologians call this the um, restorative law. And this reflects God's redemptive process to restore sinners to himself. Okay, so the animal sacrifices were meant not, not as a way to expiate their sins, but it was a way to show them that they needed to be restored to God through the sacrifice of an animal. As it says in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Uh, so the sacrificial system... Uh, the ceremonial laws, it was a way for God to show how we needed to be reconciled to man. This included the, uh, I believe, the festivals and the Levitical laws. Now, if Jesus says that not one iota, not one smallest thing shall be destroyed or taken away from the law, then what do you do with the sacrificial system? What do you do with these ceremonial laws? If he establishes the law and says he came to confirm it, and this is part of God's law, then what do we go back to offering animal sacrifices? The answer is no. But did you know as a New Testament believer, we still actually observe the ceremonial laws and the sacrificial system? Did you know we do that? We're going to do that today when we take the Lord's Supper. Because as Hebrews explains the sacrificial system came to its fullness when the Son of God sacrificed himself and became our high priest. Now we don't offer animal sacrifices. The ceremonial law is still intact, but the way that we observe it is we look to Christ's work on the cross. And when we do this Lord's Supper, when we, when we take of this ordinance, we proclaim his death, the Bible says, until his return. That's how we observe the ceremonial system. So God hasn't, hasn't even destroyed the ceremonial system. It just has changed in the life of the New Testament believer. It's just changed. And as I mentioned, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 um, says that. Speaking of the ceremonial law, speaking of this, it becomes obsolete, it says. And this is why soon after the book of Hebrews was written, where Hebrews talks about Jesus, our great high priest, the once-for-all sacrifice. Some years after that, Jerusalem was destroyed and the whole sacrificial system came crumbling down because that part wasn't needed the way that we are restored to God is not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the 
sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, on the cross. So again, even the ceremonial laws uh, are still intact today. We just observe them in a different manner. Uh, And even the Passover, the Passover was a festival. Now we observe the Passover by taking the Lord's Supper. And you can actually go through all of the festivals. Um, This would be a good study. Uh, For instance, the Day of Atonement. You know, we don't do the new Uh, the Old Testament festivals because they were all accomplished with Christ. We observe them by looking unto the finished work of Christ. The Day of Atonement was fulfilled by the death of Christ. So again, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're observing the Day of Atonement in a different manner. Another example I gave was the Festival of the Firstfruits. This was fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. So we celebrate, in a sense, by celebrating the resurrected Christ, as he's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Christ as the first fruit. So we observe that each Lord's day. So the question isn't, is the Old Testament, for the new, uh, is the Old Testament applicable? The question is, is that we must be diligent to determine which parts of the Old Testament fall under the ceremonial law and which part of the Old Testament fall under God's moral law that we're obligated to observe as it's said in the Old Testament today. So I want to set aside the ceremonial law, and and as I mentioned, fulfillment in Christ, we're observing them in different ways, and I want to speak about the moral law. So from here on out, when I say the law of God, I'm, I'm speaking about the moral statutes, ordinances, and penal sanctions that God gave in the Old Testament. Uh, Now, there's a right and a wrong way to use the law, as I mentioned, and Paul addressed this throughout his writings. The wrong way to use the law of God is to use it as a means of righteousness or as works righteousness. And there's some confusion on that because many people believe that the Old Testament, that was the way to be right with God, was to obey the law. It never was like that. The law was never meant to be used as a way of works righteousness, even in the Old Testament times. The law was not there to earn your way to God. The law was there, as we'll see uh, further on, the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. And Paul even said in Galatians, it's not in my notes, but he said, uh, by the law, I died to the law. Meaning, once he figured out that the law was not to be made as a works righteousness, he figured out what the law was meant to be used for to lead him to Christ. So there's a misunderstanding that the Old Testament law was that for some people, you, know, you had to obey the law to be right with God. It was never meant that way. The Pharisees totally, totally abdicated and twisted the law of God to make it into something that it wasn't. And we see it further on in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is correcting, correcting that. Romans 3.28, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then in chapter 4 of Romans, Paul uses the example of Abraham. He uses the example of Abraham that even Abraham wasn't justified by works. Abraham was justified by having faith in God. And he quotes Genesis where Abraham believed God. And his belief, his faith in God and God alone and, and what God promised was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. So the law was never meant to be used as a way of works, as a way of uh, maintaining or gaining favor with God. 
Now, I want to address just for a moment some alleged passages that seem to contradict the idea that the law of God is still valid for the today's believer. And there's a few texts, but I just want to kind of call out one of them. And that's Romans 6. It will be in Romans a, a bit. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 6. This is used often to, to Christians and professing Christians that want to say, you know, we're not under the law. We don't have to obey all those Old Testament laws. Uh, we're, under, we're under grace. And Romans 6, verse 14, he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. See there? We're not under the law, Mark. We're under grace. So forget about the Old Testament stuff. We're under grace. You know, it's interesting because a lot of professing believers in today's culture want to wave the the freedom flag. I'm free in Christ. No Old Testament, no law. I'm free to do whatever God knows my heart. Uh, But the New Testament writer said otherwise. How did Paul address most all of his epistles? Paul, a what? Slave of Christ. And we're going to look at a text here in, in Romans in a minute that just blows that idea up. We are not free in the regard of free from God. We're free from sin. And we're free to obey God, to obey the law that we love so much that we want to obey our master who saved us from eternal damnation. Amen? Well, here in Romans 6, verse 14, not under law, under grace. See there? And Paul actually expands this idea in chapter 7 by giving an analogy of marriage, that one's bound by the law to their, her husband while he's living, but if the husband dies, she's released from the law. Okay, so what are we talking about there, Mark? And then look at verse 4 in chapter 7. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. And then you see verse 6. But now having been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. So which is it, Mark? Is Jesus saying that we're still under the law, but Paul is saying, no, we're free from the law? You have to remember what the point of the book of Romans is and where Paul is in the book of Romans. This is a master exposition of the gospel, and his thesis here in Romans is he's proving that justification is by faith alone, apart from works of the law. So in his first three chapters of Romans, he is showing how all men, both Jews and Gentiles, all are condemned by God's standard. All those are the, those are the, with God's law, the Jews are condemned. Those without God's law, the Gentiles, are condemned before God. And then in chapters 3, starting about verse 20 through chapter 5, he's making his argument for justification apart from works of the law. Now, back then, their idea of the law to the Pharisees, to the whole, Jew, to the whole Jewish community, was that the law was the way to salvation. The law was a way to, for works righteousness. We had to obey the law for salvation. So when Paul says you are made to die to the law, 
He's not meaning that you were made to die to the commandments of God, which are good and holy and righteous. He's talking about you're dying to the law as a way of means of righteousness. That's what Paul's referring to. You're dying to the whole system that says you have to obey God's law in order to be saved. That's what you're dying to. You're not dying to God's good moral law and being released from obeying it. And Paul clarifies this. He knows this is going to come up. He clarifies this in many section, many sections in the book of Romans. Turn back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 in verse 28, where he says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then look at verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? He says, God forbid. May it never be. He anticipated the answer, oh, Paul's just trying to do away with the law. No, he's doing away with how the Pharisees adulterated the law as a way of works righteousness. That is what he's attacking. And he's defending the law of God by saying, we don't do away with the law because of faith alone in Christ, apart from works. He says, no, what do we do? We establish the law. We establish the law. Now go back to chapter 6. We see verse 1. Again, verse 5, verse four, chapter 4, chapter 5. Justification by faith alone. Abraham was saved by faith alone. Uh, chapter 5, where we have peace with God because of our, of our faith. And then chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. He says, God forbid. Now take that into context to go to back to verse 14 that we read for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. What's the context here? Well, the immediate context, he's talking about those who are, are slaves to sin. Sin shall not be master over you. And friends, what is sin? Sin is any transgression of what? The law of God. You see what he's saying here? Sin shall not reign over you because you're justified by faith alone. You're not under law, but under grace. He's making the point that you're not under this works righteousness system that the Pharisees built, but you're under grace. Now you have the ability to obey God and obey his law. So Paul, over and over in, in the book of Romans, is establishing the law. And then in chapter 7, if you go over to verse 7 of, of chapter 7, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Okay, now he's speaking of the actual law, not the pharisaical uh, adulteration of the law. He says, may it never be, God forbid, on the contrary. So he was anticipating their, their reaction to saying, oh, you're, you're just trying to get rid of the law. And the law is bad, and the law, the law itself is sinful. He's saying, no, may it never be. And he says, on the contrary, I would have not come to know sin except through the law. And we'll get to that. For I would have not known about coveting had the law not said, you shall not covet. So, you see, friends, he's establishing the law. He's not saying he's getting rid of it, but he's saying you're not under the law in a way, in a means of to work yourself to righteousness, to work yourself to be saved. So now that we have established the perpetuity of the law and that we've established the need to separate God's moral law from the ceremonial law, I want to spend the rest of my time to address 
how the law is to be used lawfully, as he says in 1 Timothy 1. So again, thank you for bearing with me. I wanted to set the foundation first of the, the validity of the law, how it's perpetual, meaning it is forever, and the parts of the law. And I could spend a whole sermon on addressing the other texts. There's some in Galatians, very similar, that people use to say, see, we're not under the law. We don't have to worry about the Old Testament uh, and that sort of thing. From that, by the way, a side note. I think it's a wrong view to have to say, unless something's repeated in the New Testament, it, it's not for the believer. Because there's no text that says that. That's a, a lot of people approach that. I'm just going to follow the New Testament, and if something's in the New Testament that's not in the Old Testament, um, or I'm sorry, vice versa. If something's in the Old Testament but not in the New Testament, then it's not, it's not for me, right? But there's no scripture in the Bible that says to do that. And with, God, and with Jesus laying the foundation down that, no, the law will not be destroyed, we need to have the very opposite mindset. We need to have the opposite since Jesus said the law of God is established, it's firm. Paul said we established the law. We need to have the opposite perspective. We need to say whatever is in the New Testament that seems to change or maybe even negate some of what we see in the Old Testament I, we are to follow what God says in the Old Testament. So do you see how we derive the ceremonial system and how we're not to offer animal sacrifices? That's how we should approach God's word. Since Jesus established the law, we need to say, okay, for instance, the, the, the dietary laws, right? We see how Jesus made all foods clean, right? We see that. We need to have that view that when we approach scripture, that if it... Um, that unless God specifically speaks to it in the New Testament, then it's still, we're still obligated today. So I'm going to go over three ways that the law is used lawfully. I, I, I've always been against sermons that kind of start with the same letter, like the points. I don't remember what you call that. Uh, at, yeah, but it just fits. So the three Ps here. The, the law is used lawfully in three ways. Number one, it preserves Number two, it points, and number three, it purifies. Preserves, points, and purifies. The first way the law is to be used lawfully is that it preserves. What does this mean? God gave us his good and righteous law to restrain man's sin. To restrain man's sin. John Calvin puts it this way of, of this use of the law. He says, quote, that at least by fear of punishment to restrain certain men who are untouched by any care for what is just and right, unless compelled by hearing the dire threats in the law. But they are restrained, not because their inner mind is stirred or affected, but because being bridled physically, so to speak, they keep their hands from outward activity and hold inside the depravity that the depravity, excuse me, that otherwise they would have wantonly have indulged. Consequently, they are neither better or more righteous before God. So, in other words, friends, the law of God is used as a mechanism to protect us from ourselves externally, to protect mankind against sinful mankind. The law of God is to be used within proper authorities and context and within the proper jurisdiction 
to externally restrain man's sin. I say externally, okay? This is merely as a way to preserve God's creature, God's creation within the proper authority and context. What do I mean by that? Well, God has granted four spheres of authority to restrain man's sin. Number one, the conscience, the family, the church, and the civil magistrate. So the conscience acts as a governor to restrain us from sinning against another person. Now, granted, many people in our culture, their conscience is seared. Uh, John MacArthur preached an excellent sermon years ago called The Vanishing Conscience, and he goes through that. So that's obviously skewed, but God does give us a conscience. Family, family God gives as a, as a, as a sphere of authority for parents uh, and their children to use the law of God to restrain their child's sin. And then church, God has granted the church an authority, again, to use the law of God to restrain our sin. Again, I'm using this in a mere external uh, preserving and keeping us from hurting each other externally type of, type of deal. And, and ultimately, or not ultimately, but most of this applies to the civil magistrate uh, with the people. Uh, God grants them authority to protect uh, the innocent and to punish evil. But friends, more and more, so God gives these four spheres of authority to, to bridle or to protect, to preserve mankind. But more and more we're seeing in the culture, the family, the church, government, more and more we're seeing them set aside the law of God and substitute it with man's opinion and with pragmatism. Man's opinion and pragmatism. We see this with the family. The family is destructing right before our eyes. Why? The average family is not governed by the law of God. They're governed by worldly ideologies and humanistic philosophies, are they not? And this has permeated the church as well. Many professing Christians are not using the law of God to apply to their family. Husbands are not being husbands according to the law of God. Wives are not being wives according to the uh, word of God. Parents aren't uh, disciplining their children according to the word of God. They're using their own inventions and their own opinions on how best to approach the family. Pragmatism has just latched on everywhere. In the church, the church finds a way to conform to the world, not to scripture. The civil magistrate, well, you don't need to say much about our government, do we? They have this idea that whatever works, whatever keeps me in power, whatever pleases the people, this unregenerate people, so they can vote me back in so I can keep my power. Let's set aside the, the law of God and its objective standard and let's use our own rationale opinions on how best to govern the people. In each of these four jurisdictions, friends, the law of God is to be used to restrain sin. The law of God acts as a preserving effect. It must govern our conscience. Parents, you're to use the law of God to restrain your children's sin. Not as the way the civil magistrate does with the sword. They bear the sword. Parents, you bear the rod of discipline and love. There's a fallacy even in the Christian, uh, in much of Christian uh, contemporary Christianity that you know, we just want to give our child grace and let them, you know, not, not, not make a big deal of obedience and, and honor and, 
and that sort of thing, and, and obeying the law of God. We'll just show them grace. And there's a fallacy that giving a child grace and corporal punishment according to the law of God with love are pitted against each other. But they're not pitted against each other. Okay? We're to call parents. Parents are to show love and grace at, as they're disciplining their child. And I would say you're not showing your children grace by not giving them consequences for their sin according to the law of God, not your own inventions. You're not showing them grace. You're actually hating them by letting them sin and going unpunished. That's what the Bible says. You know that? Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And that word diligently is not being a passive parent and waiting until your child disobeys enough to irritate you and then you get up with an angry voice because you've been irritated and interrupted in your day. That's not what it means to discipline him diligently. It means to be active, to have a focus, to have a vision, an end goal in mind, to be active when it comes to teaching them the right thing, not just punishing them when they do the wrong, but teach them what to do that's right and practice it so that when they do wrong, you, you, can, you can lovingly, lovingly give them consequences for their sin. The authority for parenting mothers and dads are the, is the law of God, not our own pet peeves or subjective opinions about what we ought to discipline for. And the fifth commandment says what? It's for children. Children, listen up. It says to honor your father and your mother. Brothers and sisters, this is the most important thing that we can do to love our child is to secure the fifth commandment obedience that God requires. I mean, secure it, practice, work hard at it to secure obedience. When you allow that little toddler to, to continue in their sin and to walk away when you call their name, uh, to not come to you when, you when you tell them to come, when you allow them to do that and just get away with it, you're hating them, you're hardening their heart is what you're doing. So when they grow up, they're going to have a really tough time to submit to authority. And they're going to go obstinate as you continue to let them uh, continue in that sin. Uh, and at the same time, you can provoke your child to anger by always being that person that's over your kid and correcting for everything with a harsh tone uh, and having too much uh, discipline that doesn't fit uh, the consequence. So there, there's a balance. Okay, There's a balance. But, uh, but parents, we must obey the word of God and parent according to the law of God. When we secure obedience at a very early age, the fifth commandment isn't obedience, it's honor. Because honor is in the heart. You can have external obedience, but you can have dishonor in your heart. So by securing obedience at an early age, you set your child up to be able to uh, fulfill this commandment when they get older, to not merely externally obey you, because there are some kids that are really good at that. They can obey very well on the outside, but inside their heart is not honoring their parents. They're going to have a tough time unless, the God, unless God works in their heart when they grow older. And then in church, moving to church, pastors are to use the law of God to govern the conscience of man. And this acts as a restraining mechanism. And also, as we see here in a minute, it aids in sanctification. But civil magistrate. This is one sphere God has given, as Romans 13 says, to be an avenger 
who brings wrath upon one who practices evil. The civil magistrate, according to 1 Peter 2.14, says that they are sent by God for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. This then necessitates the question, what is evil? What is right? Where do we get that from? We get it from the law of God. We get it from the law of God. The civil magistrate is not to be the ministry of mercy, but to be the ministry of justice. And that's what's much of what's wrong with our government today, is they've set themselves up to be God. They want to be God. They want to be able to be a social welfare program so that the whole society, whenever there's a problem, what do people do? When there's a problem with society, where do people look? They look to the government to solve it. And the government says, hey, yeah, I'll solve it. I'll solve it by robbing from these people and using money we don't have to then solve all of these social problems. But friends, that's not the duty of the civil magistrate according to the law of God. They're not the ministry of mercy. That's the church. They are the ministry of justice. They are to enact and to uh, enact laws and to uh, give sanctions, penal sanctions for those laws that are in accordance with God's law. The church is to come in and say, yeah, you've done that. You've committed that crime. You got a just penalty. You even may have, you know, had a physical consequence, you know, but God will forgive you for that. So the church is to be the ministry of mercy. That's not the civil magistrate's job. We see that so often, so often right in our own state with our judicial system. There's this influx of, of the judicial system trying to show mercy to criminals, God doesn't say to be merciful to criminals. It says to enact justice upon those criminals. And so there's this revolving door. Criminals coming in, they're letting out, and then they go do more crimes. And they come back in, they get let out, then they go kill somebody, and then finally they're put away. But that's not what God calls the civil magistrate uh, to do. Our confession in chapter 24, the 1609 confession, first paragraph says, God, the supreme Lord and King over all the world, has ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good. And to this end has armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them who do good and the punishment of evil doers. So again, friends, the civil magistrate's job is to enact just laws and to execute justice by punishing evildoers and to do it swiftly. And this is something that our government has failed to do. So I ask you, if you and I don't tell them, who will? Because in their perspective, they're doing a good job. But if the church doesn't tell them to get them back in their place, Nobody will tell them. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11 brings this idea in a really good way. It says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. And that's what we're seeing in our society today. We see a complete breakdown of all these jurisdictions that we went over. We see a breakdown of the family not holding to the law of God. We see the breakdown of the church not holding to the law of God. And we see the breakdown of the civil magistrate abandoning the law of God, 
not punishing evil, but rewarding evil in many cases. And so what happens, Ecclesiastes hits it. The people are given fully to do evil. Let me give you one example. In the Old Testament law, do you know what the penalty was for raping a woman? It was the death penalty. Now, go ask the average person, should someone get put to death for rape? And they would probably, oh, that's just so harsh, you know? Don't you believe? Yeah, I've talked to Christians. Don't you believe in grace and forgiveness? Yeah, that's the church's job, not the civil magistrate's job. God gave that sanction of the death penalty. So we just talked about the third commandment. Go speak evil of God's laws. Go say they're harsh, they're, they're bad, they're not good. You know, God gave that law. Isn't God's law not good? What would happen if the government today enacted the death penalty for rapists? There would be some fear in a lot of criminals' minds and eyes, don't you think? And if it was done swiftly, and at the same time, the civil magistrate enacted the law of God when convicting because there are commandments on how to <clears throat> justly convict somebody out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. The witnesses have to be free from the crime. Uh, there's a number of different um, requirements to even convict somebody. But imagine, so that's one thing. Stealing's another thing. People go to jail for they steal and then they get out and they steal again. God, God didn't have jail in the Old Testament, okay? God's penal sanction for theft was retribution. They were to go work it off, plus some. Okay, what would happen to all the, the thieves out there if instead of going spending 30 days in jail, going, getting out on bond or whatever, that they had to go actually work and pay it off? I think theft would go down, don't you think? Our government has absolutely abandoned the authority of the law of God and has just latched on to pragmatic ways to enact laws and laying aside God's law for man's law. Not to mention, when the, when the civil magistrate enacts holy and just laws, do you know what else this does? This is the beauty of God's law and the gospel. When they enact just and biblical laws, it helps guide and, and impress upon man's conscience morality friends it actually does flow from government people say that the government's downstream from culture i think it works both ways when the government enacts a law they say don't do that it's wrong and if you do that here's the consequence well to the average person what does that say hey it's okay to do this it's legal i can go kill my baby it's legal it's okay when the South Carolina enacted the heartbeat law, I have friends that are on frontline ministries of abortion clinics reaching out, preaching the gospel, offering help. When that it was enacted a year or two years ago almost now, people were coming and saying, it's okay, it's okay. It doesn't have a heartbeat yet. In their mind, they just rationalized. The government said it's okay to kill my baby as long as it's before they can find a heartbeat. So when the civil magistrate enacts good and holy and just laws to the unregenerate people who base their law upon or base their morality on laws, it helps guide their conscience and sets them up to hear the gospel. A couple years ago, I went to a pride festival here in the city to preach the word of God and to offer the gospel. And let me tell you this. There's a big difference when the government says it's okay for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman in today's culture 
it's very hard to preach the gospel that that's a sin because the government has said it's okay. You go back 20 years ago and you go to a festival, a, a gay festival, and something inside of those people know that it's wrong because their conscience hasn't been seared yet and the government hasn't abdicated its duty and just freely says it's okay to marry whoever you want to. You get what I'm saying with that? When the government enacts just laws, it impresses upon the conscience. So they might still be in their sin, but when we present the gospel that these things are wrong and sinful, it, God uses that to convict them of their sin. So it's very important that we don't, we don't just tuck and run. We don't stay out of what the government's doing. It flows through everything. It preserves our, our culture. It preserves mankind. But it also sets a foundation for morality, which helps to bring the gospel forth. And churches and families, as I mentioned, have abandoned the law of God. So we must restore the law of God. We must restore the law of God. In each of these jurisdictions, each of these spheres of authority, we must restore the law of God in order to advance the kingdom of heaven and to preserve our own mankind. So number two, and these will come quicker. Number one, was the law preserves. Number two, <clears throat> it points. The law points, specifically points us to Christ. And this does this in three ways. It points us to Christ by showing God's character. The law reflects the very holiness and righteousness of God. Even in the civil law, in the penal sanctions that God gives, it shows us the severity and the seriousness of God's law. You go back to the civil laws that God gave and look at how many things deserve the death penalty. To us, we go, whoa, witchcraft. That deserved the death penalty. Homosexuality, that was the death penalty. But the law of God shows us God's character by, by God implementing those penal sanctions. It shows us the severity and the seriousness of God's moral law, his standard of truth. Next, it defines and condemns sin. The law defines and condemns sin. Paul said, Romans 3.10, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Later on in Romans 7, he says, I would not know what it truly meant to covet unless I knew that it says thou shalt not covet. And then it shows us our need for a savior. It shows us God's character it defines and condemns sin, which then shows us our need of a Savior. The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. Galatians 3, 24 says that. But the law of God, friends, it must pierce our soul. To the unregenerate, I'm speaking. It must pierce our very soul, and it must lead the unregenerate to see themselves stood, standing, condemned under the righteous wrath of God. Until... The law of God affects the unregenerate in that way. There's no salvation for that person. John Calvin puts it in such a powerful way. Speaking of this use of the law, pointing us to Christ, he says, quote, It warns, informs, convicts, and lastly condemns every man of his own righteousness. Listen to this. He says, For man, blinded and drunk with self-love, must be compelled to know and to confess his own feebleness and impurity. If man is not clearly convinced of his own vanity, he's puffed up 
with insane confidence of his own mental powers and can never be induced to recognize their slenderness as long as he measures themselves as long as he measures them by a measure of his own choice but as soon as he begins to compare his powers with the difficulty of the law he has something to diminish his bravado for however remarkable an opinion of his powers he he formerly held he soon feels that they are panting under so heavy a weight as to stagger and stutter, and finally even to fall down and faint away. Thus man, schooled in the law, God's law, sloughs off the arrogance that previously blinded him. End quote. In other words, brothers and sisters, because the unregenerate man is so blinded and drunk with our own pride and self-love, He needs to be convinced of his wretchedness by measuring himself against the law of God. The unregenerate man must be weighed down so heavily by the law of God that it crushes their false pursuits or delusions of works righteousness. Then and only then will the unregenerate man believe the gospel and flee to Christ. The law of God, friends, is half of the gospel. You can't have the good news without understanding there's bad news. This is why when we present the gospel as we should, especially in today's culture where, as John Calvin said, men are so drunk with self-love, pride, they think if there is a heaven, I'm good enough to go. We have to take the law of God and we have to use it as a mirror to show them their wretchedness. So this is why many conversations I have, gospel conversations with unbelievers, I spend most of the time in the law of God. And we should. And you know what? As Pastor Swan said just a few weeks ago, when we open our mouths and speak like that, the hatred comes back. Because people at their heart, if they're not regenerate, they hate God at their core. And when we tell them the truth about God's standard, you want to know how to get to heaven? Here's God's standard. Then one or two things are going to happen. God's going to use your word, the word, to harden their hearts. And he's going to use your word to condemn them on the day of judgment, which is very sad. We don't want that. Or he's going to use your word, as Jeremiah said, my word is like a rock. He's going to use your word, the word of God, the law of God, to break up that fallow ground, to break up their hardened heart. And then the power of the good news comes in, the gospel comes in, where you get to tell them, but God... But God, there's too much gospel out there that's only half of the gospel. It's not, there's no law of God. It's God loves you. God wants a wonderful plan for your life. Come to Jesus. He'll make all your problems go away or he'll heal your hurt. Some of the benefits that are actually there in Christ are used to perpetuate the gospel, but they fail to really share the gospel because they're missing the law of God and they're missing Salvation through faith alone and repentance uh, from your sin. Lastly, briefly, the law of God purifies. So the law of God <clears throat> preserves, it points, and it purifies. In other words, it sanctifies, it makes believers holy. Brothers and sisters, if in, you're in Christ, the law of God is the foundation for our sanctification. 
Sanctification is the process of God renewing our entire being to become more like him and enable us to die more and more to sin and to live more and more to righteousness. That's a process that begins the moment of salvation and it doesn't end until you end your, and your, until your life ends. How does God do this? He does it through the Holy Spirit. And how does he do it through the Holy Spirit? He works the law of God in our hearts. He gives us the power by the Holy Spirit to obey God's word. And there's a misunderstanding of sanctification that the law works in opposition of the spirit. I'm saved, I got the spirit, that's how I'm gonna lead my life. I'm led by the spirit, I'm not led by God's law and all the legalistic rules that are in the Old Testament. The spirit of God tells me what to do and how to act and I'm just led by the spirit. It's a misunderstanding. That's not sanctification. Being led by the Spirit does not mean, mean being led by your feelings, which is what most people really mean. The Spirit brings us freedom. I said this earlier. It does bring us freedom, but it brings us freedom from the slavery of sin, not the freedom from the moral obligation of the law. And Romans 6 and verse 15 says this beautifully. Actually, verse 16 he says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God, listen to verse 17, that th- though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed and having been freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. Now, friends, again, what is righteousness? How do we know what's righteous and good and holy? It's found in the law of God. There's this mysticism amongst the church where subjective feelings of a person's heart guides them, and that's their standard of morality. If I feel it in my spirit, if I'm being led by the spirit, the spirit is leading me. God knows my heart. It doesn't matter what God's word says. I have the spirit. I've heard these things. If you've not heard these things, they're out there. It's a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit. God does not contradict himself. If his word says don't do this and someone's doing it, claiming it's the spirit, then they're absolutely wrong because God does not contradict himself. We are to become more like Christ, to walk as he walked, and he walked in perfect obedience to the law of God. And even in Ezekiel, the promise of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit to put a new spirit within them, it says in verse 19, and in verse 20 it says that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. This is a result of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It's not to then have these subjective feelings on what you should do and what you shouldn't do. It's that the Holy Spirit's put in you at regeneration and in faith so that you can keep his statutes and ordinances. The word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my paths, what Psalm 119, 105 says. And Jesus quotes 
Deuteronomy 8.3 to say that man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you're called in Christ, you are to live and walk by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So what's the point in all this? That sounds good, Mark, but what's the point? Well, friends, you have two, one of two things, and I said this a few weeks ago. You either have theonomy, God's law, or you have autonomy, which is your own law. In your life today, you're either living theonomously, you're either living according to God's law, or you're either living according to your own law, the things you've made up, and then you're holding yourself to the standard that you made. But God's law reigns supreme. And we need to ask, what areas of our lives are we living in an autonomous way versus theonomous, which is God's law? Are there areas of your life, whether it's home life, work life, marriage, relationships with family, how you approach the church, how you approach work? Are there areas of your life where you're living according to your own standard? You're living autonomously and not theonomously. That's not a word, but I just made up theonomously. So in conclusion, I want to ask, what is your mindset towards the law of God? What's your mindset? And I want to challenge you to read through Psalm 119 and ask yourself, is my own heart the heart of the psalmist here when it comes to the law of God? Where he says in verse 11, your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. In verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. Verse 16, I shall delight in your statutes. This is talking about his law and shall not forget your word. Or verse 18, where he says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Is that your heart today? Do you seek that the Lord would open your eyes so that you can observe wonderful things from his law? Or verse 20 says, my soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. Does your heart sing that you want to long after God's ordinances and obey him with your heart? Or are you like many mainstream Christians who are just apathetic to obeying God and being obedient to his word? He says in verse 34, give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. I mean, I could go on. All of 119 is the psalmist loves God's law. He breaks and longs to obey God's law. He wants to treasure it in his heart. He wants to speak his law as a testimony before kings, he says in verse 46. He delights in God's commandments. Do you delight in the commandments of the Lord? That's a good heart check upon yourself. To know if God truly has saved you. Are you truly in Christ? Do you not care about God's law? Or do you have a heart that yearns to obey him and you're crushed when you realize that you've been disobedient to his word? You know, children, this is a good exhortation for you. You know, God, one of his main commandments, again, I said it earlier, is to honor your father and mother. And a good way to know if God has regenerated your heart is to look at your heart and do you have a desire you may not be perfect in it, but do you truly want to obey and honor your parents 
Not because just because you love them, which is great, but because you want to obey Christ. Is that your heart today? You know, husbands, do you seek to obey God and, and love your wife as Christ loved the church? You know, even when she may have done something or said something to offend you, are you willing to put your pride aside and to overlook the supposed, uh, the supposed uh, offense and show your wife love and honor? And wives, same goes for you, for your husbands, or do you just, are you apathetic towards it? It's a good check. Read Psalm 119 and ask yourself, is it my heart's desire to love the word of God, to love God's law, to, to desire to obey it, and then take that to God? So in conclusion, I want to challenge us all to look at the word of God, to look at the law of God in a new light that we may have never looked at before, that it is still part of God's word. It's active. It's alive. It's a two-edged sword and we are to use it lawfully. So ask yourself these questions and consider what areas of your life do you need to repent and take to God that you've been living in a way aside from the law of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your law, God, your Old Testament law that you've preserved throughout the ages. And, O oh Lord, I I kind of don't like calling it the Old Testament because it has an idea that it's, that it's not for us today, God, but it is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, I pray that we would use the law lawfully, as Paul said to Timothy. Help us, God, as many, many tough questions arise from the law of God and the applicability today and how it's applied and and cultural aspects. And God, I just pray that you would guide us and lead us, Lord, that we would be able to understand and, and, and accurately apply the word of truth to our lives. Lord, we thank you and we just give you honor and praise that we could worship you today. And uh, Lord, may your law reign supreme in our parenting and our relationships, Lord. May it reign supreme in this church. Lord, I pray that your law would be restored to our government like it once was. And God, that justice would flow like a river, as it says in your book of Amos, Lord.